This morning, uh, we're going to return to our study of the book of Genesis. If you want to open there with me, your Bibles, if you have one. If you don't have a Bible, we would love to give you one of those. Speaking of giving, um, visit the info bar for that. This message I've entitled Family Dysfunction Redeemed, Part 2. Part 1, you remember, was chapter 37, two weeks ago. Chapter 37 introduced us to the family of Jacob, a.k.a. Israel, and his 11 sons. And in particular, Jacob's favorite son, Joseph, and the family dysfunction surrounding him. And we extrapolated 10 principles for healthy family functioning from Chapter 37, 10 sins that families need to avoid. Quick recap, number one, we looked at the sin of favoritism. Joseph, with his coat of many colors, was Israel's favorite son. But we said God doesn't play favorites with his kids, and so we shouldn't either. Number two, the sin of slander. Joseph exacerbated the problem by tattling on his brothers. You know, do we talk up our family members, or do we tear them down with our speech? Number three, that can lead to anger. Joseph's brothers grew to hate him. If we don't deal with our anger, it's going to build and fester and eventually boil over and cause even worse division in our relationships. Number four, boasting. Joseph rubs his favoritism in his brother's faces. I'm the greatest. Scripture says our only boasting should be in the Lord. And that caused them, number five, to be jealous. Proverbs says, envy will rot your bones. How many of our families have been poisoned by envy? Number six, insensitivity. If Jacob were a a good parent, he would have picked up on that toxicity in the family relationships and addressed it. And so too, we need to pay attention to our family dynamics, seek to be peacemakers. Number seven, vengeance. Unaddressed anger and resentment will lead to a desire for vengeance in our flesh, like Joseph's brothers. We want to get even, we want justice, but remember God says, you leave that to me, you work to forgive others. Number eight, greed. Joseph's brothers ultimately decide to sell him into slavery for 20 shekels of silver. People do terrible things for money, rather for the love of money. And number nine, deception. Jacob's sons lie to him about Joseph. Animal must have killed him. But the strongest families, we said, can handle the truth, even difficult truth shared in love. Finally, number 10, despair. Jacob despaired over losing his son Joseph. He lost all hope. And it's really hard for a family to recover from that. But verse, but chapter 37, we said, ended with a glimmer of hope, with redemption foreshadowed, and the promise that this was not going to be the end of Joseph's story. God was not done with Joseph yet, and so we're going to return to Joseph's story next week. But this morning, we're going to see this exact same movement once again in chapter 38 in this infamous story of Judah and Tamar. And by the way, somehow, we managed to do an entire sermon series here a year and a half ago on the toughest text in the Bible and not cover this one. So, I'm going to deal with it this morning. Uh, Once again, this message is going to be part practical and part prophetic. The practical is, this story is going to offer us, once again, five additional 
practical warnings for families. Don't be like this. This, this story is like a, a, a giant blinking neon, you know, warning, stay away sign. Don't be like this family. But once again, we're going to end with a glimmer of hope. Prophetic hope. Redemption foreshadowed in the closing verses. Just like chapter 37, the big takeaway for this morning, once again, is that every family is flawed, but never beyond God's ability to redeem. Every family is flawed because every person is flawed. The Bible says, all have sinned, fallen short of the glory of God, and yet we're never beyond God's ability to redeem, to bring good out of evil, beauty out of ashes. You think that your family is screwed up. Just wait until you hear about Judah's. This is some 4,000-year-old Jerry Springer grade dysfunction that we're going to get into this morning. This story has got it all. The cheating, the incest, the paternity test. On Jerry, they just throw chairs at each other. Judah tries to burn Tamar at the stake. Trust me, you are all going to feel a lot better about your family walking out today. But the moral of the story is that no matter how messed up your family is, no matter how messed up you are personally, that there is no one and no family that is beyond the limit of God's grace. You cannot out God's grace. You can't out-dysfunction God's redemption. God takes the very worst we throw at him. He forgives us. He restores us, and then he providentially brings right out of that wrong. He uses our bad to accomplish our good. That's the kind of God we serve. So would you stand with me once again as we read together Genesis chapter 38. Read the whole thing, and then I'll let you sit while we work through it this morning. Hear the word of the Lord. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hirah. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. Yet again she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Chazib, where she bore him. And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur... Judah's firstborn was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. And then Judah said to Onan, Go in to your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his, and so whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste his semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up, for he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah, to his sheep shearers, he and his friend Hirah the Adulamite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up, and sat at the entrance to Hanan, which is on the road to Timnah. 
For she saw that Shelah was grown up, and she had not been given him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. And so he turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come in to you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me that you may come in to me? He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, If you give me a pledge until you send it. He said, What pledge shall I give you? She replied, Your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away, and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend the Adulamite to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of the place, Where is the cult prostitute who was at a name at the roadside? And they said, No cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also the men of the place said, No cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, Let her keep the things as her own, or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat, and you did not find her. About three months later, Judah was told, Tomorrow your daughter-in-law has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, Bring her out and let her be burned. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, By the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, Please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, She is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son Shelah, and he did not know her again. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied the scarlet thread to his hand, saying, This one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out. And she said, What a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore his name was called Perez. Afterward his brother came out with a scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for every part of your word, even the bizarre, the embarrassing, the difficult. God, we trust your promise this morning that all scripture is God-breathed. All of it is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training, and righteousness. God, we trust that you want to do that again this morning. You want to teach us. You want to rebuke us. Help us to see here not just Judah, and Ur, and Onan, Tamar, but to see ourselves. Read ourselves into the story. We need to be rebuked and corrected and trained in righteousness. Father, we also need to be encouraged. We thank you that because of Jesus, sin no longer has the final word in Joseph's life, in Judah's life, and in our lives. We thank you for the living hope that we've already sung about this morning, and that it can be ours this morning by grace through faith. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. 
five sins that will tear a family apart. Number one, straying. Straying. Things go bad right from the start here. And keep in mind, this isn't the first time we've met Judah. Judah was the one who hatched the plan to sell his brother Joseph into slavery back in chapter 37. And so that ought to get, give us an early indication of the kind of guy that we're dealing with here. But look with me at verses 1 through 5. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite. The Hebrew reads, Judah left his brothers, and he settled with Sedulamite. God had blessed Judah by graciously allowing him to be born into the single, solitary family of faith in existence at this time. Millions of people running around all over the planet, only a dozen of them know the Lord, Yahweh, the one true God. And so what does Judah do? He leaves them to go join up with a Canaanite. The last time Judah met a Canaanite, the guy raped his poor sister, Dinah, back in chapter 34. And yet he runs away from home to hang out with these kinds of folks. And sure enough, this friend, Hirah, immediately leads him astray. 1 Corinthians 15.33 says, Bad company corrupts good character. Our influences matter. Judah's character wasn't great to begin with. And so you can imagine how bad he becomes after hooking up with this guy, Hirah. Actually, we don't have to imagine. The next verse informs us this friendship was just the first step toward Judah's complete canonization. Next, he is marrying a Canaanite and producing pagan children. You know, they say a journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step. And the same is true of a person's journey to hell. Very few people start out on the highway to hell. It's usually more like you just get tired of driving on the straight and narrow, and so you decide to pull off just, just for a little break take an exit ramp, and then you realize, hey, there's some pretty interesting stuff off this exit. I'm just going to check it out just for, just for a few minutes. Before you know it, a little detour turns into an entirely different route altogether. This is how it happens. Judah didn't set out to be a rebellious, apostate, incestuous, prostitute, patronizing hypocrite. He was just tired. He just wanted to change. He just wanted some new friends. Some of you here at West Hills, you have severely prodigal sons and daughters. They consciously took the expressway to apostasy and unbelief. But many more of you have told me your children just got tired of attending church, waking up early on Sundays during college, reading their Bibles, following God's will for their life, swimming upstream against the culture. Living for Christ is never the path of least resistance in a fallen world, and so they took the easier road. 
Not a complete 180 onto the highway to hell, just a little detour, just a little strain. That's how walking completely away from the faith begins. A marital affair doesn't begin in the bedroom. It starts long before that with a seemingly innocent text message that becomes an ongoing private chat that becomes a relationship that becomes emotional that becomes sexual. Proverbs 4.14 warns against straying onto the path of the wicked. Avoid it. Do not go on it. Turn away from it and pass on, it says. Don't even be tempted by that exit ramp. And part of loving others means we're called to warn them too. James 5 says, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. That is tough to do. Pointing out to someone that you care about that they're straying. It feels judgmental. In fact, we often misinterpret Scripture about not judging others to try and excuse ourselves, get ourselves off the hook so we don't have to confront a wandering brother or sister who desperately needs it. But love ought to compel us. We have some spiritual family members here at West Hills, even right now, who are straying. Some of them just took a little detour during COVID, just a little break from church. And now they have wandered dangerously far from the path of righteousness. Are you reaching out to them? And what about you personally? Are you personally on the straight and narrow this morning? There are plenty of ways to stray besides skipping church. Jesus said the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. But the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. There are exit ramps everywhere. So Paul says, don't give the devil a foothold. If you give him an inch, he's going to take a mile. Just a little strain on a, on a trip from L.A. to Hawaii, being just one degree off, means you end up in North Korea. So Scripture says, make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires, but put on the Lord Jesus. A little strain can lead to a world of suffering, an eternity of suffering. Stay the course, brothers and sisters. Stay the course, the straight and narrow. Number two, sedition will destroy a family. Sedition is rebellion against authority. A little straying from the path can eventually lead to all-out rebellion against God. You start to compromise, to push the boundaries, to bump up against God's guardrails, and before you know it, you're on a different path entirely. Judah did. Judah raised three, or at least two, we don't know about Shelah, but he raised at least two lawless, godless sons. The first one, appropriately named Ur, 
because he erred big time. His sin was so egregious, verse 7, that God just killed him. No, no explanation given. God knew that I was going to have to stand up here in church one day and read Ur's sin out loud to you. So whatever he did was apparently so bad, God in his mercy just didn't even name it in his word. It was even worse than Judah's sin. It was even more embarrassing than Onan's sin that I already read. So you can just let your imaginations run wild about Ur and how bad his sin was. What, but, but what is going on here with Onan? This is uh, the earliest biblical evidence we have for the practice called leveret marriage whereby the oldest unmarried brother of a man who died without producing children was obligated to marry his deceased brother's widow in order to produce for her an heir to the family line. The purpose was twofold. Number one, to carry on the family name of that deceased older brother. And number two, to ensure that his widow would be cared for. You remember, this was long before Social Security, Medicaid, all those social safety nets, the safety net back then for a widow was you marry your dead brother's, your dead husband's brother. That was the safety net. He takes care of you. He helps produce children who will one day care for you in your old age. And so leveret marriage would actually become Old Testament law later in Deuteronomy chapter 25. But verse 9, Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. Onan had no interest in carrying on his brother's name, in letting Judah's birthright pass from him as the number two in line. If Ur didn't have kids, it would pass to Onan. So he had no interest in that. He had no interest in caring for his brother's widow, taking care of Tamar, and yet he's got no problem taking advantage of her, of her body, of using her for his own selfish pleasure. It's not like he refuses to have sex altogether. I mean, he's still a man. He's got needs. He's got no problem with that. God's very first command all the way back in the garden in Genesis chapter 1 was to be fruitful and multiply. But Onan lawlessly, defiantly, selfishly, he wastes his semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. And so in verse 10, God kills him too. And in case you forgot where these two sinful sons learned their dereliction, we hear in verse 11 that Judah too refuses to fulfill his duty by giving his third son, Shelah, to marry Tamar. It says, for he feared that he would die like his brothers. And so Judah makes up an excuse. It says, go back to your father's house until Shelah grows up. But Judah never had any intention of giving Shelah to Tamar in marriage. Verse 14 divulges that even after Shelah has grown, Judah has forgotten all about poor Tamar. So now, a little string has become full-blown sedition, rebellion, disobedience of God's law. Romans 2 tells us that God has written his law on every human heart so that no one is without excuse. We call it our conscience. But 1 Timothy 4.2 also warns us that it's possible to sear your conscience, literally to cauterize and render callous and useless your conscience. 
a seared conscience is like spiritual scar tissue. It's numb and desensitized to sin. I've shared my testimony with you all before. When my father left our family, I hated God so much, I didn't just want to stray. I wanted to hurt God. I figured God had broken my heart, so I would break his heart back by breaking his law. So like any middle school boy wants to break God's law, I turned to the easiest, darkest, most short-term gratifying, most long-term devastating outlet that I could find, internet pornography. I can tell you from personal experience the cumulative effect that years and years, image after image, the searing effect that that has on the conscience. Some of you know it well too. I mean, if the statistics bear out, 80 plus percent of the guys here have used pornography in the last week. Sedition destroys families by destroying hearts. God doesn't just give us his law to regulate interpersonal mistreatment, but to mitigate personal misery. All the thou shalts and the thou shalt nots of the Bible, they're not just about governing our social interactions with one another, keeping everybody from killing each other. Ultimately, God gives us his commands for the purpose of promoting our flourishing. Sin leads to death. But God desires life for us, life to the fullest. So the question we have to ask ourselves this morning is, do I trust that God knows what's best for me? That when God says, love your enemies, or forgive your offender, or don't sleep with that person, or be fruitful and multiply, or submit yourselves to the governing authorities, or whatever command that God has given us, do we trust that God knows what is best for us? That God is not the fun police trying to make sure that no one has a good time. On the contrary, God knows what our sin, what our sedition does to our own hearts, how it hurts us. And God hates it for that very reason, because he loves us. Us. Like any good father, God wants to protect his children. And he knows sin left unaddressed worsens, intensifies. And number three, we see that in Judah's life, deepens into sexual immorality. Sexual immorality destroys families. First, Judah strayed a little off the path, then he outright opposed God's law, now with conscience seared, his sin deepens, devolves into sexual immorality. Verse 12, his wife dies, and the Hebrew reads, desiring to be comforted, Judah went up to Timnah with his buddy Hiram. Judah knows where to go and with whom to go to have a good time. If he wants to forget about all his troubles and his grief, a weekend. This calls for a night out on the town with his Canaanite crew. Gordon Wenham notes sheep shearing was a lively festival where wine was freely consumed and so that's what Judah indulges in. And for her part, Tamar, no longer content to be merely a passive victim, 
She takes matters into her own hands. Lest anyone walk away from this story looking good, she seizes the opportunity. She trades her widow's garments for a prostitute's veil, and she waits for Judah by the roadside along the way. She knows what kind of guy her father-in-law is. The fact that she even thought to set this trap for him tells us, again, a lot about Judah's character. But once again, Judah removes all doubt. By falling for her ruse, verse 16, he turned to her and said, let me come in to you. It's very direct. No beating around the bush. She says, what's in it for me? He answers, a goat. (laughs) Apparently that was the going rate for temple prostitute these times. Side note, I find it interesting that Judah is there to shear his sheep. He's got a herd full of sheep with him, but he offers her a goat that he doesn't have with him. Couldn't find any answers in the commentaries this week, if anybody's got a theory. The only thing I could come up with is maybe this is foreshadowing Jesus' parable of the sheep and the goats, where goats symbolize wickedness. I don't know. In any case, Tamar negotiates to accept Judah's signet and cord and staff as a pledge, as collateral in the meantime. A signet or seal, usually worn around the neck, affixed by the cord, was used for personal identification in letter writing and making contracts, etc. One's staff also included unique carvings to mark ownership. And so Wenham points out, as the legal surrogate of the bearer, these objects would have served as a kind of ancient Near Eastern equivalent of a person's driver license and credit cards. This highlights just how depraved Judah has become. What he was willing to risk for a a few fleeting moments, pleasure and debauchery. Figuratively, he compromises his very identity. And have you ever had your identity stolen? Well, Judah just hands his right over. He's lost all sense of who he is. That's how sinful, how far he's strayed. Sexual immorality does this to us in a unique kind of way. Some Christians have the mistaken idea that all sin is equal. It's not biblically true. Scripture differentiates between sins and puts sexual immorality in a category of its own. 1 Corinthians 6.18 says, Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin that a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit that is within you? There's something uniquely personal and intimate about our sexuality and thus about sexual immorality, especially when you're a believer and when your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Everything that we see, watch, feel, desire, touch, indulge in, God comes along for the ride. Think about that. Sexual immorality is so personal that Jesus considers it the only valid exception clause to his no divorce rule. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 32, chapter 19, verse 9, he says, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Every marriage is going to go through its fair share of troubles and sin, but there is a type of sin that is so personal and it so violates the marriage covenant such a breach of the trust that is required 
to sustain a marriage that it potentially renders the marriage unsalvageable. Potentially. God can do anything. It has a unique ability to tear families apart. The same even holds true for the church family. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul rebukes the church for condoning sexual immorality of a kind that is not even tolerated among the pagans. For a man has his father's wife. It's kind of like Judah, who has his son's wife. Paul warns them not to even associate with such a person because a little leaven leavens the whole lump. They're supposed to purge the evil person from, from among you. You don't get excommunicated from the church for any old sin. But sexual immorality is different. It ravages hearts and families. And number four, so does suppressing the truth. This is the next part of the natural progression or digression, as it were. Straying leads to sedition, which at its worst entails sexual immorality, but the most natural reaction to our sin, especially the most intimate personal of sin, is what? It's shame and hiding. What's the first thing that Adam and Eve did when they sinned in the Garden of Eden? They scrambled for the fig leaves, right? Hide. And so does Judah. Verse 20, he sends his good buddy Hirah to, to, to take care of this. He's the fixer. I've got a cover-up job for you. Judah can't have his signet and his staff, his identity floating around out there in the possession of a common harlot. But there's a problem. Hirah can't seem to track her down. He asks all over town until Judah finally says, look, we've got to forget about it. If we keep asking questions, where's the prostitute? Where's the prostitute? You know, somebody, people are going to start to wonder about me. It'll, it's going to, it'll soil my good reputation. He's trying to save face. He even remarks in verse 23, Hirah, you'll vouch for me, right? Like if she tries to come back and hit me up for interest, for late fees. I tried to send her the goat. You can vouch for me. I'm a man of my word. Judah has got to hide so many layers of shame that he's fooled himself into believing that deep down, I'm really a good person. I've got to keep the facade going, at least, for everyone else. Again, I just, I'll personally interact with the text this morning and let it hit you where it will. I, you've got to personally interact with the text. I, too, got really familiar with suppressing the truth with hiding and shame. In the heyday of my son, I got really good at lying and hiding. I lost all my friends. I isolated all my family. It's a whole ritual associated with hiding a sin like pornography. The bigger the sin grows, the more there is to hide, of course. There's the physical hiding, deleting your browser history, destroying the evidence. Then there's the even darker spiritual hiding, withdrawing, Isolation. The irony is that even though I knew what I was doing was bad and hurting God's heart, I couldn't bring myself to admit that I was bad. That's the thing. We're not just sinful because we sin. We sin because we're sinful. 
It's the difference between guilt and shame, by the way. Guilt is feeling like you've done something bad. Shame is feeling like you are bad. I couldn't go there, and so for every image that I clicked, every video I watched, every classmate I objectified, it was like I had to ace another test, score another goal, win another award, memorize another Bible verse. Church even became part of the cycle, trying to hide, trying to cover over layers and layers of shame. This facade of the, the golden child. And if that's what sin and shame do to an individual's heart, it's no secret what they will do to a family. I don't think my family even knew me, the real me, until just a handful of years ago. I finally sat my family down. I confessed that I'd lived a lie all those many years. You've never really known me. I've been hiding in shame. Jesus said, the light has come into the world, but people love the darkness rather than the light. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. Bringing light to bear on that kind of darkness is hard. It hurts. But Jesus also said, I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. Friends, you can step into the light this morning. Whatever sin, whatever straying, whatever sedition, even sexual immorality, whatever the extent of your sin, Jesus said, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, except for one. See, I told you, all sins aren't equal. It's one unforgivable sin. Jesus says, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is the only unpardonable sin. When you feel the Holy Spirit tugging on your heart, calling you to confess and to repent, to turn from your sin, calling you to step out of the darkness and into the light, convicting you of your need for forgiveness for a Savior, and you ignore it, you suppress it, you blaspheme it. You say, well, that, that wasn't God. The preacher was just really persuasive this morning. I, I don't know why I'm getting so emotional about this. It's probably just my time of the month. You blaspheme the Holy Spirit. You make excuses for long enough. Refuse to repent. Surrender your sin to Christ. Eventually, God will give you over, eternally over, to the hardening of your heart. And that sin is unforgivable. There is no coming back from that sin. So friends, I implore you this morning, don't do it. Step out of the darkness and into the light. Don't suppress the truth any longer, the truth about your sin, the truth about your need for a Savior. Jesus is the truth. He is the way. Don't stray from him. He's the way, the truth, and the life, and he's the light. You can step out of darkness this morning. You don't even have to clear, clean up your sin before you do it. That's the, that's the beauty of it. Jesus doesn't say, go clean up your act and then come to me. That's his job. That's why you step out of the darkness. Give it to him. Just trust him. He's good. You need a savior. Because the alternative, number five, is speciousness. Couldn't ruin the S alliteration. And so you get to learn a new word this morning. 
means apparently good or right, though lacking real merit. Superficially pleasing, but deceptive. It's a synonym for hypocrisy. Just typed hypocrisy in the thesaurus. Judah is an utter hypocrite when he finds out in verse 24 that Tamar is pregnant by immorality. His response, without even blinking, is, bring her out, we're going to burn her. His immorality is okay, but hers is unforgivable. Our sin always looks worse on other people, doesn't it? If you refuse to come to the light this morning, this is the way it will go. You keep dressing up your own sin, but condemning it in others. I tried that for many years. I was the most critical, hypocritical, judgmental person, tearing down as many people as I needed to, to feel marginally better about myself, instead of simply admitting that I was not okay. My sin was not okay, but I know a Savior who dealt with my sin for me and paid the penalty for it on the cross in my place. That's what Jesus offers you this morning, freedom from the penalty of sin. Fortunately, Judah eventually drops the charade. Tamar kind of forces him to when she reveals that she's the one with his driver's license and credit cards. So verse 26, he owns up to his sin. He admits, Tamar is more righteous than I this was all my fault. I refused to give her my son, Shelah, as God commanded. I shouldn't be in Canaan in the first place, hanging out with these Canaanites. But look what happens when we do that. It's hard to admit you're wrong. Look what happens when we do it. God saves. He saves. He redeems. And he saves. We stray. We seditiously rebel. We're sexually immoral. We suppress the truth. We're specious and hypocritical. But despite it all, God offers you salvation this morning from all your sin. Our God works through the Judas of the world to bring about his own good plans. You remember that name, Judah, associated with anyone else in the Bible? Like the lion of the tribe of Judah. Judah begat Perez, begat Hezron, begat Ram, begat Amenadab, begat Nashon, begat Salmon, begat Boaz, begat Obed, begat Jesse, begat King David, and 28 begats later, begat Jesus, who is called the Christ. This is how our God works through the Judahs of the world, the wills of the world. So you can take heart this morning, brother, sister. No one, no amount of sin or family dysfunction can thwart our God's good plans to rescue us from sin's penalty and redeem us from sin's curse. Praise God for his mercy and his grace this morning. Amen. Let's pray.